get started, folks. All right, this morning we're talking about um, the atonement, the, the work of Christ. Last week we kind of covered Christology, which is essentially the person of Christ. When we talk about uh, who he was, and basically he was God and man in one. You can remember that. If you're curious, go back and listen to the one. If you missed it, it's on the, on the website. You can go find it and listen to it there. But today, instead of the person of Christ, we're talking about the work of Christ. So what did he do and why did he do it? Who did he do it for? That's pretty much what we're covering. Um, atonement is a word that it doesn't actually come from anything weird like Latin or Greek. A lot of times we, you know, we try to find the original roots to languages. Um, this word is basically an English word, which is very simple. At one. Meant. And that's, I mean, that's actually where it comes from. I was, I was reading through and somebody made that point and I was like, oh, that's a cute little thing to help you remember what atonement means. Well, that, that's, I mean, if you look it up in the dictionary, the etymology of this word literally is at one meant. It comes from meaning. So the idea of an atonement is that it reverses a separation and makes things back at one. And so it's very useful for us when we're talking about the fall and the curse of man and then our atonement were made at one again with God through this, this act, this atonement. Okay, so part one kind of coming in. Foundations. Why is there the atonement? The biggest thing we have to recognize is God's love. And along with that, of course, there's mercy and grace and all those wonderful things. Um... But a key, it's like Jesus came to earth and took on human flesh. Um, we need to understand why. Why did he do it? Why did the eternal Son of God humble himself uh, and take on human flesh and die on a cross for us? Um, there's a quote, John Murray, um, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he says, No treatment of the atonement can be properly oriented that does not trace its source to the free and sovereign love of God. So ultimately, the, the biggest source of the need for the atonement was God's love. You can also see in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And you know the rest of it. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so effectively, the cross is the greatest image, picture of God's love. And the costliness of that sacrifice um, is the basis and the foundation for all of what we're going to talk about. God's love. All right, so the necessity of the atonement. And this is actually part one on your outline, I think, the necessity. Okay, the one question that always comes up when we're talking about the atonement um, that people have been trying to kind of really solidly answer for centuries is, was it really essential that Christ come to earth, live a perfect life, and then die to atone for us? Why couldn't God, he's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. Why couldn't he just go, okay, everything's forgiven, you're good. Let's just forget about this whole sin thing, no worries. Everybody gets saved, you're all coming to heaven with me. Why couldn't he just do that? Why did we have to have this blood sacrifice? Why did we have to have someone die for us? Well, that's what we're going to talk about, the necessity of the atonement. Okay, so let's look at some kind of scripture points that talk about it. 
first, we have to start off with two concepts to help us understand kind of um, a basis on which we can build this. First is... The holiness of God. In order to answer any of these questions about why an atonement was necessary, we have to understand that God is holy. Um, we discussed this, um, well, we, not too much, but in the Attributes of God lectures part of this series, um, we talked about His holiness. And um, you can find the phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so because he is perfectly holy, he requires perfect holiness in order for anyone to be in his presence. He can't be in the presence of anything less than perfectly holy. Okay, so there's part one of why an atonement was necessary. Part two is the sinfulness of man. We talked about this last week. Well, week before last, sorry. Andy did. Yeah, so the sinfulness of man is the other part of that. God is holy and perfect. In order for us to be with him, we have to be holy and perfect. But there's a problem. We're not. We're entirely sinful. So the atonement, the idea of the atonement is to bridge this gap. That's the purpose of it. Look in uh, Hebrews 9.22 and we see it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So if there is to be salvation, God's wrath against sin must be satisfied. Right? Holy God requires a sacrifice, requires a blood sacrifice in order to atone for the sinfulness of man. And then if we look in uh, Hebrews 2, it says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people. Okay, now this is linking back to the old sacrificial system, which we're about to talk about more in depth. Um, so just kind of keep that Hebrews 2 phrase in mind. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Okay, so... It's not inherently necessary that God saves anyone. Keep that in mind. God is under no obligation to save anybody. He didn't have to make the atonement. He could have let us languish in our sin. We rebelled against him. We deserved it. Um, he chose, in his sovereign grace, to make a way of atonement possible for us. And he secured that atonement for his people. No doubt about it. Okay, so, moving on to part three. The sacrificial system. Or actually, I guess it's part two yeah, no, Cod's, yeah, okay, sorry. This outline's a little bit skitter-scattered. Just follow me along if you can. All right, sacrificial system is another part of this. The Old Testament shadows um, what Christ's work would do. We've heard that phrase a lot of times that, you know, the Old Testament sacrificial system is the shadow of what was to come in Christ. God prepared the way for the coming Messiah by giving Israel a system of sacrifice that would help them understand that sacrifice was necessary to atone for sin. Um, and through the law and those prophets, God repeatedly showed Israel their need for uh, forgiveness, their need for atonement. Because part of the idea of the law, we read, um, Paul says all the time, why did the law come? To show us our sin, to make us realize how sinful we are. Um, 
there are basically two parts if we look at the Old Testament atonement. Um, in the Old Testament, we have, uh, first, there is the scapegoat. And you've heard this phrase before. The priest would take, lay his hands on a goat and effectively transferring the sins of the people to that goat, and then they would run him out of the city um, into what they called the outer darkness, the, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, um, kind of where we get the idea, actually, where the language for hell comes from was the outer place, the parts outside of the city where the people didn't really go. They were safe inside their city. They would run the, the goat out of the city to make it get as far away from them as possible. And that was a picture, it was an image of God taking their sin away, of their sin leaving. Now, there was also another part of the atonement, and that was the sacrifice of the spotless lamb. And you, you kind of understand how this one goes. Um, priest, they would take a lamb that was blemish-free and pure, and they would, they would kill the lamb, and they would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the, the place where God sat, um, in order to obtain forgiveness for the people. And, you know, there's these huge rituals that he had to go through before he could even get in there. You hear the stories about them tying ropes around their ankle in case they fell over dead from going in there with sin. Um, but there are four characteristics of this part of the sacrifice. And these are the, the four um, I want you to write down for sure. Okay. Well, things about sacrifice. Had to be offered voluntarily. So we understand the coercion, if we're forced into this, it would negate the idea of true sorrow and repentance. If you're being forced to repent, it's just like, you know, if you're being forced to recant your faith. It's like, okay, well, you're forcing me. Or you, people, we hear about Constantine forcing people to be baptized, just running them through the baptistry. It's like, okay, forcing them to say, I believe in God, doesn't make them believe it. All that does is force them. So it had to be voluntary. There you go. Um, second, it had to be offered on behalf of a guilty party. So in order to account for an individual's sins, he had to pay the cost. And so the substitution had to be made for him specifically. So... On the Day of Atonement, obviously, the priest would go in, and this idea was that he was atoning for the sins of, of the people. But on a typical day-to-day, -day, like if you, know, if you needed to go and atone, you know, get atonement for your sins, you'd place your hands directly on the sheep that was to be slain, and that would atone for your sins specifically. So it had to be offered on behalf of a guilty person. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Third, the sacrifice had to be without defect. Which meant it had to be perfect. Why? God requires purity um, in the sacrifice. Otherwise, that impurity would symbolize some sort of brokenness on the part of that creature. 
Does that make sense? So um, if a blemished lamb was slain, that blemish, he would only be repenting for atoning for that blemish. It had to be one. The picture was that purity was being destroyed in order to rescue sinfulness. Um, an injured, blemished, whatever kind of animal was not acceptable to God, which is why we see Cain um, getting angry about Abel's sacrifice, because God didn't find Cain's sacrifice good enough. He said, hey, no, man, this isn't, this isn't the best you have. This isn't perfect. I want, I want perfection as a sacrifice in order to cover your sins. All right, and then fourth, the sacrifice had to involve the loss of blood. And not just, I love how uh, R.C. Sproul says this. He says, it's not like Jesus could have come to earth and pricked his finger and that would be enough. The picture of the sacrifice of atonement is that it had to involve blood, which for the Jews equals death. The idea of it is that the life is the payment, not just a little bit of blood sprinkled on the seat. Couldn't just keep a, a little lamb in a little pen at the temple and like cut him and get a little blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. No, a life had to be given in exchange for these sins. Okay, so all of that Old Testament activity, these things kind of culminate in the Day of Atonement when he goes into the high, uh, Holy of Holies, brings the blood sacrifice for the entire people. But here's the problem. These sacrifices got done over and over and over and over and over and over again because they could never efficiently pay for the sins. They would pay for it once, and the next year, he had to do it all over again. When you sinned, you had to go <laughs> kill another dove, kill another lamb. It, it wasn't once and for all. You had to keep offering these. So here's what Hebrews 10 kind of says about the Old Testament sacrificial system as it being a shadow. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have, not, would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sin. Okay, so... Old Testament sacrificial system brought an awareness of sin, but it didn't actually take away sin. Because the sacrifices weren't worthy to satisfy God's justice. It wasn't enough. Made man clean outwardly, but not inwardly. They were still sinners. All right, any questions about this part before we move into the next bit? Cool. All right, um, next thing kind of talk about is the historic objectivity of, um, let's see, hold on a second. I'm trying to make this line up better with your uh, handout. New Testament atonement is where we are now. So, yeah, the part three, there we go. Okay, so historic objectivity. What this basically idea here is that it was a real thing. When Jesus came to earth, he really walked on earth. When he lived a perfect life, he really lived a perfect life. When he was killed, he really died, and he really rose again. This isn't some little story that we make up to kind of make ourselves feel better. It's not just a kind of metaphorical picture of God's forgiveness for all people. It's a real event that really occurred. It's historically true. Um, see in Galatians 4, 
when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. There is a point in time when Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross for our sins. So, understanding that that's a real event um, means that it can't be repeated. The atonement was one, a one-time deal. Christ can't be re-sacrificed, which is a glorious thing because in the Old Testament, the lambs had to keep being sacrificed, but Christ doesn't get sacrificed again because he already has been. It was a one-time deal. And if he could be sacrificed again, that would show basically that his work was in, insufficient and he had something else to do. Okay. Since the atonement is a completed work, it's been accomplished, we have to understand how it was accomplished, the nature of the atonement. Okay? Um, Philippians 2.8, we see, And being found in the appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Primary emphasis of Christ's work of redemption is not on us. It's on the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father in our place, and he perfectly met the demands of the law. So his purpose for coming down was not to do his own will and to kind of help us out, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. So keep that in mind. He's following orders. Um, and now, this is on here, um, Christ was ultimately perfectly obedient. And that's why his atonement works. That's why he's the spotless lamb who is sacrificed for us and why he gets to be sacrificed and that works. His obedience is typically kind of sorted into two categories. We see his active obedience and his passive obedience. Um, the active obedience basically means that he obeyed the requirements for the law in our place. Um, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. Actively. And so I, I, sometimes I've wondered, like, why did Jesus have to live for 33 years before he got to be sacrificed? Wouldn't it be enough if, you know, God could become incarnate as a baby? And I don't know, maybe, maybe that whole Egyptian thing would have worked out. And so the baby would have been, been killed. It still would have been God, right? That still would have been. He still could have rose again. Why did the guy have to live for 33 years, um, go through all this ministry, um, and then be killed? Well... Just as Adam's disobedience made all people sinners, Christ's obedience was necessary to make many righteous. Makes sense. Um, Jesus became our righteousness before God so that he could fulfill all righteousness. You hear that phrase with John the Baptist. He says, this, this is happening to fulfill, all right, to fulfill the righteousness. He was baptized. He, he fasted. He hurt. He prayed. He cried. He, uh, he lived a life of ministry. He performed miracles. He did things. And he was all the time being totally obedient to God. And that satisfaction of the covenant of works, we talked about that before. God has kind of the covenant of works that must be satisfied um, for salvation to happen. He satisfies the covenant of works by his perfect obedience. He lived a sinless life um, so that he could be the sinless lamb, spotless lamb. So it's not through the mere incarnation and then death and resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection, that our salvation is secured. It's also through the perfect life of Christ. That's an essential part of why the atonement works. Okay. 
Uh, and then the passive. I don't know why I'm writing these up here like, they, like I wrote anything underneath them. Passive obedience of Christ is basically him acting as a suffering servant. Um, it doesn't mean that he was like an involuntary victim of affliction, um, but, um, how do I say this? Here, I'll read Hebrews 5. He learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So it's not that Jesus was becoming sanctified because he was already sinless and holy, but um, it's the idea that the obedience of Christ was learned through suffering, it was perfected through suffering. That's a better way to put it. Perfected through suffering, consummated in his suffering uh, and death. And so that was something when he was suffering on the cross, he wasn't actively doing that. I mean, I guess he was, but that, that was being imposed upon him, if that makes sense. So he wasn't actively living a sinless life at that point. He was being put underneath, a, a, he was a passive actor in a suffering thing. And that suffering is part of what his obedience looks like. Try to break that on the difference. In, 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 in English, we think about active voice and passive voice verbs. An active voice is when I do the action, and a passive voice is when the action is done to me. Okay, so that's the difference. Okay, now this is my favorite part. Uh, the language of the atonement. Just because, like I said, as an English teacher, I love metaphor and imagery and all that stuff, and this is like, you know, the best imagery there is is in the Bible, right? Okay. Language of the atonement. First, throughout all of Scripture, uh, we see different kind of pictures, different m- metaphorical language used to talk about um, redemption, um, sacrifice, and atonement, ultimately, which is what we're talking about this morning. Um, and the f- first one that we really notice, probably the most, is what we already talked about a little bit, the sacrificial and ritual language. Uh, and absolutely, it's, it's for sure that um, this was an integral part of what Jesus did, was the sacrifice. See, in Ephesians 2, it says, Now in Christ Jesus... You who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So we have that picture of blood, that blood enacting and basically cleansing of sin. Romans 5, since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God, God's wrath through him? Important thing to remember. Jesus' sacrifice... is, I'm trying to think of the best word to use here. Jesus' sacrifice is it was just right here. I just saw it. It's effective. That's it. Effective. It's once and for all. It does it. It does the job that it was intended to do unlike the, the blood of lambs and goats and bulls, which only served as a shadow, as a reminder that God was forgiving sins, but that was just a picture. Okay, so Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and it's effective. And you can say, okay, that was just two examples of passages that I just read, just two of many, many, many that refer to how the blood cleanses us. We sing songs all the time. A lot of hymns were written about the blood, the blood um, that cleanses. So 
The idea there is all pulling from this sacrificial imagery. That the sacrifice, there was blood lost, life lost. Um, and that is what forgives, that is how forgiveness of sin is uh, accomplished. Okay, so we deserve to die just like the Jews did. They deserve to die for their sins, but a, a goat was killed for, for them or a lamb was killed for them. Um, for us, Christ was killed. Another kind of cool thing real quick I'll just mention. Uh, notice, remember there was two parts in the old atonement. There was the, the goat that was run out of the city. Jesus was killed outside of the city. Uh, he bore the sins of his people. He was killed in the outer darkness. And so in Christ, we not only have a picture of the sinless lamb that was slain, we also have a picture of the scapegoat that was run out of the city to take our sins far away from us. So he is the culmination of both parts of that atonement. It's really neat. All right, so that's uh, sacrificial. But the next one is the language of redemption or the marketplace. You hear this word all the time, redemption, redemption. We talk about it. We, it's one of our you know, kind of buzzwords in Christianity, just like redemption, yeah. Originally, that word wasn't thought of so spiritually. Um, redemption was simply uh, kind of a term for business. Um, or even for, you may think of slaves. We don't think of slaves very much because we don't have them. Um, we're kind of out of that world. But in the old, old world... Um, for years and years and years, for centuries, um, the redemption of a slave was an everyday thing. So the idea would be, say, I was a man who became indentured in servitude because of a debt I owed or whatever. So I'm working for a guy, and while I'm working there, I meet another slave, and we fall in love and get married and have kids while we're working on this, this farm or whatever. Now, since I married her on the farm, we were both slaves, I work up enough and... I get set free. So I'm free from my slavery. Well, she's not. My kids and her are still in slavery because their debt isn't paid off. And so a lot of times what these guys would do is they'd go and work and work and work, or they'd say, no, I'll stay here and work for theirs too. And so he'd keep working, and he would purchase them from the guy who he was formerly indebted to. And that act was redeeming them. And we hear about the whole, the, you know, with Ruth and the, the kinsman redeemer. Um, the idea was this person comes and purchases something. There's an, a transaction that occurs. And this is exactly what we see pictured by Christ. Um, we are slaves to sin. We're in our sin. A payment is required to set us free. And Jesus came and paid that price. He paid the price to set us free from sin. So the picture of the redemption, kind of the, the marketplace of, of prison or the marketplace of slavery. Um, we see in Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation. That was Revelation 5. So effectively, our lives are in jeopardy, and Christ pays the price to get us out of that hostage situation. So you hear the language of ransom as well. For us, we think about, you know, there's a bad guy who's got hostages, and he calls for a ransom. You have to pay to get them set free. It's the same picture. Um, we can also see kind of the language um, used whenever Christ on the cross, his final words are, it is finished. Um, 
this is a, a really n- neat linguistic kind of thing. That phrase that he uses on the cross was a phrase taken directly out of regular dealings uh, in the market. Uh, in a financial transaction, say I went over to my local uh, market and I purchased a brand new refrigerator and I couldn't afford it all at once. And so they would give me a little payment plan thingy where they'd say, okay, will you pay some now? We'll keep it and you come and pay some more later and you can buy it ultimately. Okay, great. So I pay a payment, I come back and I keep paying. And finally, I pay the final payment and he would take my little receipt and he'd mark on it paid in full and he'd deliver my, um, my refrigerator, right? That paid in full thing is this phrase. It is finished. It's done. The payment has been completed. Um, that's it. So it's just kind of neat to see that Christ was using this language that would have been used to denote the completion of a payment process um, to show that it's done. I don't owe anymore. We don't owe anymore. Um, And also within this redemption idea, and we kind of have the idea of the bride price, um, that Jesus comes and redeems, uh, purchases his bride. Um, That links back also to the slavery thing I just talked about. But there's also just a level of just the regular redemption of of a bride from her father uh, also. So keep all those things kind of in mind. There's lots of different imagery uh, happening in the language of the atonement. All right, the third one is reconciliation. This is referring to our relationship. Um, So think about... Uh, Romans 5, for if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This is referring to our broken relationship. When the curse happened, our relationship was perfect with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, but it got broken, and they no longer had a perfect relationship. And so what Christ does is restores that uh, that relationship. He acts as our great high priest um, so that he can intercede for us and our relationship with God is restored through Christ. Um, and then the fourth one is justification, which is kind of like the language of the law courts. Okay, so the law court language. Um... Let me break this down in kind of three pieces. This emphasizes the reality of our legal guilt. We're guilty. Uh, We broke a law, and we deserve some sort of punishment. Um, Second thing is that there is really a penalty that must be paid. Um, And third is that Jesus is the one who pays that penalty for us. Okay, so legal guilt... Penalty, that's the word. Penalty to be paid, and Jesus pays it. Um, I heard once this little story to kind of give a picture of this. That we a lot of times will think of this being kind of a pecuniary issue, which means dealing with money. Um, rather than a moral one. 
And so this language helps us understand better the moral guilt idea rather than just the pecuniary debt idea that kind of comes from the marketplace. So it's not just that we owe a debt that we have to pay in, you know, pay in full, which we do, but there's also this idea of moral guilt. And I want to separate those two. There's, okay, here's the story. There's a little boy. He goes into an ice cream shop, and he wants two scoops of ice cream. So he asks the lady, can I have two scoops of ice cream, please? She gives them to him and says, that'll be $2. And he says, oh, no, I only have $1. And so you're standing behind the little boy, and you go, okay, no worries. Um, I'll just pay the other dollar, and, and it's cool. Does the waitress, lady who's taking them, does she have to take that money? Well, yeah, it's legal tender. There's no reason for her not to take my payment on behalf of the little boy to purchase the ice cream. But that's, that's pecuniary debt. That's, there's money that is owed, and I supply the money. There you go. But our debt that we owe is a little more than that. So imagine the second scenario. This little boy goes into the same ice cream shop, and he's standing there waiting. And the girl goes back into the back. He runs around the counter, grabs an ice cream cone, gets two scoops of ice cream, and starts to head out the door. And the proprietor says, whoa, hold on there, son. Um, and he calls the police, and the police come. Okay, I'm sorry. This is a little bit out far-fetched, but just, just bear with me. He calls the police. The police get there. And, and I'm there, and I'm like, no, 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 wait. I'll just pay for his ice cream. You know, he's just a kid, whatever. And the policeman says, he looks at me and he looks at the proprietor and what does he say? Do you want to press charges? It's not so simple as just paying for the ice cream cone now because there's a moral debt to be paid as well. Now, the proprietor could choose that, okay, he's just a kid, whatever. It's not a big deal. But he could also choose to, you know, force the kid, I don't know, to wash some dishes. <laughs> he could make him, make him pay more than what the thing would have originally cost because there's a moral debt as well. That's the difference between this law court justification versus the marketplace. And I think this more fully uh, grasps the picture of what we actually owe. Because our debt is not just something that can be paid for easily. It's something that requires true sacrifice more than, more than what we originally uh, simply owed. Because it's a moral transgression. A few verses to kind of go with this justification idea. Through him, it's Christ, uh, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. Okay, so the law couldn't justify you completely. That was Acts, by the way, Acts 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians also says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We've been washed, we've been justified. So picture a law court, we're sitting there, um, we're on trial, and Jesus walks in and says, nope, I already went to prison, I paid the penalty, it's done for. He can go. That's really cool. All right. So that's kind of the language of the atonement. Any questions about that? Language? Okay, moving on then to some different theories of the atonement. There are lots of different ways that theologians over time have um, tried to come up with to understand the atonement. Many of them have uh, been really far out and not right at all, but some of them have been good. Um, <laughs> one of them mainly has been good. Okay, first off, the ransom to Satan theory. Okay, now this links back to 
the um, redemption marketplace language where we see the ransom word being used. So we owe a, a payment is owed in order to set us free from our bondage, our hostage situation. Um, at one point in time, some people, uh, and people still think this, that the ransom is actually owed to Satan. He's holding us in our sinful bondage. And so Jesus came and paid the price to Satan to set us free. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, God didn't owe Satan anything. Uh, Satan, <laughs> Satan doesn't have that much power. Let's not, let's not give him that much uh, praise. Um, the ransom is owed to God. Um, he's the one who requires perfection. He's the one who requires this um, holiness. And so Jesus came to satisfy the ransom that God required. So don't let, don't let that language uh, confuse you. We're not, it's not ransom being paid uh, to Satan. Second is the governmental theory. Governmental theory basically holds that uh, God, since God is omnipotent, he didn't actually have to require a payment for sin. Uh, he could have forgiven the sins without any kind of penalty. Uh, so Christ died basically just to demonstrate that laws had been broken and that some kind of penalty had to be required whenever laws were broken. Um, so Christ didn't pay the penalty for the actual sins of anyone. He was simply sacrificed to kind of show that God's laws were broken and there must be a penalty paid to re reinforce that God's laws must be kept. It was basically just a deterrent to keep us from sinning anymore. Like, look, this is what you'll get if you keep doing this. Okay, obviously, that's no good. We believe that Christ's sacrifice was effective. It was a sufficient to forgive our sins, not just kind of a la-la-la picture. All right, and then finally, the moral influence theory. This is similar to the governmental. Moral influence basically says that um, Jesus died on the cross to basically provide an example for rebellious humanity of how we should live before God sacrificing ourselves. Um, now, that's, that's not totally untrue. Christ is an example for us of how we should uh, live our lives, moral improvement and all that stuff. Um, but this theory totally avoids God's hatred towards sin. Um, basically ignores the reality of punishment of sin, um, the need to be reconciled for, to God, because there's, there's really no need for it. It's just, you know, God, live like this. Live a good example. It's okay if you sin, but just keep trying to live like Jesus. That's all you have to do. Um, the, this view basically ends up saying that man can save himself by living a life like Jesus did. Um, and we're incapable of that. We can't save ourselves. All right, and then number, uh, the last one, penal substitution, substitutionary atonement. This is also called the satisfaction theory. You'll hear, if you ever read anything by Anselm, he calls it satisfaction. This is the right view. <laughs> This is what we would believe, we would say. Oh, oh gracious! Scripture shows us and tells us um, it's substitutionary atonement. Jesus came and paid the price. He was a substitute that died on behalf of us. Second Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we have been healed. There you go. I don't think I have to say any more about that one. <laughs> this is real good. I mean. Um, I'll also read 2 Corinthians. God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There you go. God is a just God. He requires a sacrifice to meet up to his holiness. Jesus was that sacrifice that accomplished righteousness for us. Okay, really fast. Jared's looking at me with the evil eye. But really fast, this is a really important part, and I don't want to be able to talk about it. Um, is Jesus the only atonement that can save? Yes, absolutely. There is no other atonement that can possibly save us. Jesus is the only one. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. For whom did Christ die? That's a really hard question. Um, what is the extent of the atonement? This can be controversial. It is. It can't be. It, it is controversial. People disagree about this all the time. We could dedicate a whole class to studying for whom Christ died. Um, I would like to point out um, a few scriptures just to kind of lay groundwork here. Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many and to lay down his life for his sheep. The question you have to ask yourself is, did God, did Jesus die to make salvation a possibility or a certainty? And um, I would say that he died to make salvation a certainty. Uh, John Owen said there's basically three possibilities. Christ died for some of the sins of all men. Christ died for all of the sins of all men. Or Christ died for all of the sins of some men. Okay, the first one is obviously not true. Christ died for all the sins of it says everywhere, he died for all sins. There you go. Um, the second one's not true because Christ, if Christ had died for all the sins of all men, then everyone would be saved. Some people will say, well, what about disbelief? Uh, well, disbelief is just a sin. So my disbelief wouldn't stop that, the forgiveness of that sin. Um, so if Christ died for all the sins of all men, all men would go to heaven. We know that's not true. So the only thing left for us to say is that Christ died for all of the sins of some men. Um, his Death, his resurrection was sufficient, paid for all of the sins of the people he died for. All there is to it. If you have more questions about that, you can talk to me or Jared uh, at the end. What does the atonement do for us? This is the last part. Okay, it's the basis for our salvation, gives us assurance that our sins are forgiven. Um, it keeps us from the wretchedness of trying to save ourselves apart from God. Um, it builds up joy in our hearts. Uh, God's love inspires us to love others. It cultivates humility in our lives because we realize how much we didn't deserve that. And then we can learn from Christ's suffering uh, for what is good, and it teaches us to live sacrificially for him. And that's all there really is to it. So thank you. If you have any questions, just uh, let me know. You're dismissed. There's not enough time.